Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Guys, this is a sensitive topic. Let's just start with that. This is a tough topic. This is a sensitive topic. And this is like, I have like 40-ish minutes to cover this. Are you kidding me? That's not enough time. So I'm just going to be scratching the surface, barely touching on some themes. I'm going to try and go deep on some stuff, but we're really scratching the surface. What I want to do, I I know you have your phones away, but if you can try and take a mental picture of of just a few of the resources I want to throw up here, just if you want to actually learn more about this you got to do some research on your own. So there's some great stuff. The first thing I want to show you is this amazing website called sexchangeregret.com. It's curated by this guy named Walt Heyer, who about 50 years ago, he was one of the first people to undergo a sex reassignment surgery, and he came to deeply regret it um, and discovered some deep psychological motivations of why he went about what he did. And now he's giving a platform for people who regret the decisions they're making, and he's giving a place for them to tell their stories. Because one of the most marginalized voices in this whole debate are those who are regretting the decision to go through with it, with, with transition uh, surgeries. They are com- completely silenced and, in fact, in many ways, intensely persecuted. So this is an awesome place to go read some of their testimonies. Some other great books. I know you don't want to read, but I'm going to give you some great books that you can read if you do want to read. There are some awesome books, some great titles. Um, Irreversible Damage by... Uh, this lady here, Abigail Schreier, it's really awesome. Um, when Harry Became Sally, also a really brilliant, great book. And this one, that uh, the diocese really did a, a lot of uh, book studies with this one, The Genesis of Gender. This is honestly, if like you're wanting to tackle something really solid, this is the best book I've read this past year. It is so good. It's so solid. Um, maybe you guys can do like a book study or something with it, Aaron, maybe. I don't know. It's really, really good. So anyway, so these are some great resources. Um, to dive into this. So, look, I've been teaching on church teaching about sexuality and morality for close to 20 years at this point, I feel like. Um, and it's really only been in the last few years that the whole transgender thing has become such a present issue. I, I know based on where you guys are in life, it seems like it's probably always been an issue, but it really is a relatively new phenomenon um, that we've had to address, that we've had to deal with. And it's it really is like a, a third rail issue that just really, really polarizes things. So here, I want to start by doing this. I want to name the good that I see, first of all, in those who are championing um, the sort of LGBTQ, especially the T section of the alphabet thing, uh, those who are really defending that. Here's what I see as the good. I think the vast majority of people who defend the trans community, they're, they're not motivated by... Like your peers who really defend this, even if this is you, I mean, they're not motivated by ideology. They're not motivated by ideology. What are they motivated by? They're motivated by what I think it comes down to compassion. Like there's a a deep sense of compassion, which is good, right? I would argue that's good. I think this, this compassion instinct, I would argue it's misplaced, but it's it's, it's good. Like, there's a desire to say, like, no, no, you, you don't get to marginalize or, or belittle or, or push people off to the side. You don't get to, like, silence someone from their experience, their story. Like, you don't get to bully somebody. Like, that's a very good instinct. Like, that's a Christian instinct. Right? Matthew 25, Jesus tells us we'll, we'll be judged based on how we treated people. 
right? You do not get to silence. You don't get to bully people. Like, that's not Christian. So, like, the, the compassion instinct, it's a good instinct. It's a good instinct. But this is what I would say. I think it's, it's kind of gone askew because for compassion to be truly compassionate, for love to be truly loving, it has to be attached to the truth. When love gets detached from the truth, it no longer ceases to be loving. When compassion is no longer detached from the truth of things, it's no longer compassionate. It's just like sentimentality. It's just bland affirmation, right? Like, I don't want, I don't want to be lied to. I want the truth, right? When, this, is, this is a very important thing to hear, right? When love is divorced from the truth, when love is detached from the truth, it's no longer loving. They have to go together. That's why the title of this talk was Truth and Charity. Right? Charity is another word for love. Truth and charity, they have to go together. I want to give you like, just a very simple, concrete example on the outset here. And I, again, I don't mean to have anything be offensive or, or hurtful by any means, but just, just consider this example. I want you to imagine, it's probably not hard to imagine, but someone who has a, a different um, body dysmorphia. Right? So a dysmorphia is a, 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 um, a view of one's body that's not in conformity with reality. That's what that technically means in psychology terms, right? So think of someone who struggles with um, anorexia, okay? So you think of it, typically, statistically, it's young women. So a young girl, she is rail thin, rail thin, starving herself, not eating anything. Yet she looks in the mirror, and what does she see? She sees herself as obese, as obese overweight, right? And you can't convince her otherwise. I see myself as obese. I see myself as overweight. Would it be loving... Is it loving to say, hey, I, who am I to say that you're not? If that's how you feel, if that's how, what you think about yourself, then yeah, you're overweight. Is that loving, yes or no? No, it's monstrously unloving. It's monstrously unloving. So the compassion and the love instinct, I think, to protect people that fuels all of this, I think it's good, but since it's divorced from the truth, it's turned into something destructive and illogical. So what I want to do in the like time that I have, how much time do I have? Like five minutes. Okay. Uh, what I want to do in the time that you that you give me, if if I start going way too long, you just stand up. Okay. That'll be like, that'll be my cue. All right. All right. What I want to try and do is I want to. This is the these are the mountains I want to try and scale with us tonight. I want to try and tr- trace the origins a little bit of where does this come from. Um, and I want to explain why it's really important that we get this right. Why this isn't just like a like one issue among many, but this really is at the heart of things. So we really got to get this right. We really got to get this right. Um, okay, so repeat after me. Ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. Ideas have consequences and bad ideas have bad consequences. And the thinker of one of the worst ideas in human history is this Frenchie right here. His name is Rene Descartes. You know he's French because he has that great mustache right there. Okay. Rene Descartes. Who's Rene Descartes? We're, we're going back in time here to the uh, 16th century. He was a French philosopher. Rene Descartes, at the time, there was all these different competing philosophies that were really frustrating this guy. People were saying the, the ultimate reality is this. Some people were saying it's that. There was just all these competing philosophies and theologies and different ways of viewing reality. And he said, I don't buy any of it. I want to understand what is true I want to get to some foundation rock-solid principle is what he wanted. So what he began doing is he started thinking, I'm just going to doubt everything. I'm going to doubt my senses. I'm going to doubt my, my experience. I'm going to doubt my past. I'm going to doubt the things that I formerly knew. I'm going to doubt everything. 
And what he came to realize is that, okay, I, can, I am able to doubt the existence of everything, but while I'm thinking, I can't be deceived that I'm thinking. So he concludes, this is going to sound weird, he concludes that what a human person is, you'll see in a moment why this matters, he concluded that what a human person is, is merely a spiritual thinking thing. Like we have nothing to do with our bodies. We're just a spiritual thinking thing. We might be, we might be attached to, associated with the body, but that really is irrelevant. For Descartes, he said, I think, therefore I am. Have you heard that before? Yeah. Yeah. That's where it comes from. I think, therefore I have existence. I'm a thinking thing. This is what he, this is what he, this is what he gave us, right? And we have, we have so breathed in this way of thinking, we call it dualism. Say dualism. dualism. This idea of dualism, that I am a split between my spirit and my body. There's a difference, he's saying, between my spirit and my body. And my re- the real me is my spirit, right? This is just to demonstrate how deeply like, we've internalized Descartes' thinking about things. I, I just want to do a little demonstration here. Okay, so everyone, eyes up here, eyes up here. I want you for a second here to uh, look at my body. Thanks. Some of you, uh, I felt, some of you wanted to laugh, but you didn't laugh. I felt that. <laughs> usually, usually people laugh. It's like, I've been working out, so maybe it's, it's working. I don't know. Okay, why, answer me this. Why would, some pe- why would some people maybe find that awkward? Maybe your silence was the awkward. Why, is that, why was it kind of awkward to say, look at my body? Someone tell me, why is it awkward? Why is it awkward? You're inviting judgment. I'm inviting judgment. Okay. What else? Most people don't want their bodies looked at. Most people don't want their bodies looked at. No, let me ask you this question. I like that. I like that. Let me ask you. What if I just said, uh, everyone look at me? Would that have been inviting judgment? Would that have been kind of weird? Yes or no? No. No. But what's the difference? If, If I say look at me, what do you have to look at? My whole self. What am I touching? What is this? My body. To say, look at me is to say, look at my body. My body. Right? When I say, look at me, are you looking at like this ghostly avatar floating thing above my head? You're like, oh, he said, look at his body. And you look down at my body? To look at me is to look at my... If my body's not in this room, who's not in this room? I'm not in this room. Like, if, if, if I were to... What's your name? Josh. Josh. Okay, so if I were to walk over to Josh... If I were to punch Josh in the face, I wouldn't do it, Josh. I wouldn't do it. But if I were to do that, would Josh say, whoa, why'd you punch my body's face? He would say, why did you punch me? Why'd you punch me? Right? Would he, would she, should he sue me for property damages? Or should he like, take me to court for assault? Which one? Assault. assault right? We don't say stupid things like, hey, did you hear? Like, really sad news. Jenny's mom's body has cancer. Like, oh, God, I'm so glad she doesn't have cancer. It's just her body has cancer. Right? We don't say stupid things like that. Right? We are integrated wholes. This is what he got wrong. The body and soul is an integrated whole. It's an integrated whole. It's, it's, it comes together. Like, to be you is to be your body. You don't have a body. You are a body. You're somebody. What's your name? Kelsey. Kelsey? Kelty. Kelty. Okay, you're Kelty. You're not just a body, you're somebody. You're Kelty body. That's who you are. Sorry to make it, this just got awkward. Okay, all right, I'm sorry, Kelty. All right. 
Do you see what I'm saying, though? See how this works? This, this makes a huge difference. We're body-soul units. We exist in the unity of our body and soul. This is so important. So Descartes, he split the body into these two things. So what you have is him saying, he gave us, I think, therefore I am, right? Split the body and soul. I'm not my body. I'm just this thinking thing. What this has given birth to in our day is, I think, therefore I am, whatever I think I am. Whatever I think I am. And one of, my, one of the assignments I was at a number of years ago, the, uh, I, I was teaching a class basically about this. And one of the eighth graders, he found this just so absurd that he would come into class every day deciding that he was like identifying as a new thing every day, right? So one day he came in, his name is JR. JR came in, he was like, Father, um, I'm identifying today, it was a joke, but he was like, I'm identifying today as an, an Apache attack helicopter. And, <laughs> and the pronouns you can use for me are, okay. <laughs> So I stuck with it. I stuck with it. I honored it. I respect the person. Look, so I want to take us a step further, right? So this is where like the intellectual background comes from for where this is today. But where does this ultimately come from? Because Descartes, he just kind of set the stage with some of the thoughts. But this comes from a much deeper place. Uh, Who went to Mass today? Good. All your hands should be up. Very good. Okay. Um, The gospel we heard today, we encounter the enemy, right? Possessing this man. I was talking about my homily tonight. Who's at Mass tonight? My people. Okay. I was talking about the enemy, right? Ultimately, this comes from a much deeper place. This comes from an enemy. So we have to to understand why this is a cosmic issue. We have to go back to the beginning of our story. We have to go back to the beginning, like the beginning, beginning, like the Genesis beginning. So here's what's fascinating. Theologians, saints, mystics, doctors of the church, the, the tradition of the church, we, we know this, that before the Lord made the material universe that we inhabit, before he made the planets, the sun, the moon, the stars, the cosmos, before he made the material universe, he first went about making the angelic realm. He first made the angels. Right? This comes from beautiful reflections from saints and mystics. But he, he first made the angels. Angels are, are spirits that never had bodies. When you die, you don't become an angel. I hope that's not news to you. <laughs> okay? That's like saying when you die, you become a giraffe. Those were different species. I know, so, such a bummer. You were looking for eating those leaves, right? <laughs> Having that blue tongue. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You're not going to be a giraffe. You're not going to be an angel. Get over it, all right? You're a human. So he showed the angels. What God did is, the, in our tradition, we see that God showed the angels a semblance of the plan that he was going to unfold in time. That he was going to make the material universe. And he was going to create this place, this planet, where there was going to be life. He was going to populate this planet with with human life, that we were going to be these creatures that kind of straddled both worlds, the spirit world and the material world. Like we're higher than the, than the animals, but we're lower than the angels. We're like these, this like hybrid, like angel thing, <laughs> like this in-between thing. That's like what we are. And so the, one of these angels, a creature that was named Lucifer, his name means light bearer, by the way, Lucifer saw this plan and he rebelled against this. He said, no, you should not do this. Scripture says that the reason why the angels fell was not pride, it was envy. It was envy. What's envy? Envy says, I don't want, what, I don't want you to have what you have. I want what you want, and I don't want you to have it. He hated the fact that we have bodies. He hated the fact that we have these bodies, that we are going to be destined for communion with God, that God was going to unite himself with us. I want to read this to you real quick. This comes from a, um, an amazing book. 
an amazing book by this priest, this uh, Italian exorcist. So we had exorcism in the gospel today. This is from an actual exorcist. His name is Father Francesco Bamonte. And the book is called The Virgin Mary and the Devil in Exorcism. So what he basically did is he took all of these, like, I don't know, quotes that, that demons would say under compulsion during an exorcism. He took all these quotes and he mapped them against, like, the church's teachings on the Blessed Mother. And what you see is what the demons say when they're forced to say things is they basically teach what the church teaches about Mary, which is pretty cool. It's like Catholic Church, pretty good. So anyway, this is what a demon said during one exorcism in particular. And this, ha- this demon happened to be Lucifer, who was possessing this person. That probably sucked. Okay, he said this. <laughs> demon shouted out, I am Lucifer, the most luminous of all the angels of heaven. I will never lower myself, never, to a God who became human flesh and who assumes human traits and a human body. The repugnance we experience when he entered into that flesh, only we know. I am pure spirit. Why not I instead of that nature? What nature? Human nature. I am God and she, Mary, was put over me. Why should she have been? I would, never have, I would never bow to a creature, one created to be below me. I will not tolerate that she be next to him and over me. I was the most beautiful angel. The immaculate one is the greatest insult of your God to us. She is only flesh. I am pure spirit. I am pure spirit. She is not. She higher than I, I cannot bear this. That putrid flesh, the purity of her body, it was never, ever touched. We did not succeed. It's kind of spooky, but it's true. That's what, the, that's what the demon shouted out. He hates, get this, the enemy hates not just your soul, not just your spirit. He hates our flesh. He hates our bodies. And he's been seeking with incredible success to blind us to the meaning of our bodies. Why did God give us these bodies, these bodies that are male and female? Why is the enemy aiming all of his hellish fury at our embodiment, in particular, why is he aiming it at marriage and sex and family? Like, look at the culture. What are the things that are most profaned? Marriage, sex, and family. Why? Because they're the holiest, because they matter the most. Like, you can't profane, like, how do you profane something like a dishwasher? Like, it's just a dishwasher, right? Like, it's not holy, but you can profane the purses. And that's what's happening. Because the enemy knows that our embodiment, our maleness and femaleness, right, marriage, sexuality, the capacity for like life-giving union, right, he knows that all of this, he knows that that is the sign, like this reality, Adam and Eve, it is the sign that reveals who God is. It reveals the mysteries of our faith. Like, if you want to understand the faith, you need, you need lenses to, to read this story. We're all, like, blind. We need lenses to see this story. The lens to see Christianity is to see it through the lens of married love. It's a love story, y'all. It's a love story. That's what he's doing on the cross. That's why he rose from the grave. Like, the Bible begins with a marriage. The Bible ends with a marriage. It's all about a marriage. Like, the Lord wants union with us. He's been saying it all throughout scripture. I want union with you. And the enemy knows it. The enemy knows it. St. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he says this. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become 
one flesh. He's quoting Genesis. He's talking about earthly marriage. He's talking about the relationship between the man and the woman. Then St. Paul adds this. He says, this is a great mystery, but it speaks in reference to Christ and the church. Like Jesus on the cross, Good Friday, guys, it wasn't just a murder. He wasn't just like killed on the cross. What he was doing, he went to the cross willingly. That was God who went to the cross. And he went to the cross to pour himself out for the sake of his bride. And who's his bride? The church. The church. He's pouring himself out. He's laying himself down. That's why when you get married, when you, if you're called to be married, that's why when you get married, you come and say your vows in front of an altar. In the Old Testament, what happens on altars? Sacrifice. Things die on an altar. Right? If you're like an ox, you know, walking around Jerusalem circa, you know, 1 AD, and some high priest is walking you over to like the temple and you're walking, you're like, oh, there's the altar. If you're the cow, you should run. You're about to get your throat slit, right? You're about to die. Talk about the cow, not the priest, okay? It's just the cow. Delicious, too, I'm sure. Anyway. Marriage, guys, marriage, sexuality, all of this stuff, like, this is the sign of Christ's relationship to the church. This might sound wild. This might be new for some of us. I would imagine it probably is for some of us, but it's the truth. Like, he's not just merely interested in a friendship. Friendship's great. Personal relationship is great. He wants a total kind of relationship. And he's saying, like, the least inadequate image to describe the kind of relationship I want with you, he's like, it's, it's like a marriage. It's like a marriage. And I know for guys, it's like a hard thing to wrap your head around, but, like, that's another talk for another night. But it's true. It is true. It is true. I want you to look at this, uh, this quote from St. John Paul II. He says that the body has been created to transfer into the visible realm of creation the invisible mystery hidden from eternity in God and thus to be a sign of it. Like the body, the, like the male body, the female, the, our bodies were created to reveal an eternal mystery. What eternal mystery? The mystery of God. Like have you ever noticed when in Genesis where it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness? Right? Our God, we start every prayer. How do we start every single prayer as Catholics? In the name of the Son and Holy Spirit. What do we call that? That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? Our God is a trinity of persons, a relationship of life and love, endless life and love. And when that God, this communion God of life and love, goes to make an image of himself in creation, he doesn't just make a man, he doesn't just make a woman, he makes a couple whose bodies and souls are complementary. They fit together. And when they fit together, like life comes forth. So when the two become one, they become so much one that nine months later you have to give it a name. <laughs> and then you're three in one. Who else is three in one? The Trinity. The body was created. Our bodies were created to reveal an eternal mystery the reality of God and the relationship of Jesus to the church. Do you think the devil cares about that? Yeah, big time, big time. If you do away, if you get rid of the idea of maleness, of femaleness, of father and mother, husband, wife, brother, sister, son, daughter, if you do away, like because all, all of those words make no sense 
without reference to a body, without reference to our bodies. If you do away with that, you, you do away with like, you're crushing the lens that helps us understand the heart of the faith. Like this, like if you were the devil, if you were the devil, if you wanted to cause the most confusion in the world, to cause the most confusion in the church, what would be the thing that you would go after the hardest? The body. Our male bodies and female bodies. That you would try and cause confusion. You would try and get people to think that it doesn't matter. That maleness and femaleness is just a social construct. Is he succeeding in the culture? I'd say in, in large part, yeah. He's really succeeding to confuse a lot of people. Like, I don't even know if you guys remember this, but this was like one of the first reality TV shows about this. You guys remember this? Jazz Jennings, this teenager who was transitioning. Look, I, I, want, to, I want to proceed here with great reverence. I want to proceed here with great reverence because I don't know your stories. I don't know your families. I don't know what any of you are going through. Like, I am not here to condemn anybody. The church doesn't condemn anybody. That's not the business we're in. We, we condemn ideas. Right? Bad ideas have bad... That's, just why, that's why we condemn bad ideas, because bad ideas hurt people. I'm not here to condemn anybody. And with great reverence, like, like, there's a lot of people who are very confused right now, and there's a lot of people who want to support people who are hurting. But again, if love is detached from the truth, it becomes unloving. We want to understand the truth. So what's the truth? I want to tell us tonight, what's the truth about gender? We're hearing a lot. I mean, all you guys here, I mean, social media, all of it. It's gender identity. What's your gender? It's all over the place. What's the truth of it, though? What's the truth of it? So let's, let's, let's look at this word. So the root of the word gender is gen. It's a Greek root. It means to, to give birth to, to be the origin of. We see this root in other words like generous, right? Or generate, or progeny, or genesis. I'm going to give you one more. Genitals. Anybody awkward? How are we feeling? Are we doing okay? Do we need more pizza? All right, we're doing okay. We have to talk about this. We're going to talk about this. Okay, all right, here we go. All right. What, is, what does this mean? What does word gender mean? Our gender is determined, try and track, track with me. Our gender is determined by the manner in which we generate the next generation. And that's determined by the kinds of genitals we have. Your gender is determined by the manner in which you generate the next generation. And that's determined by the kinds of genitals you have. That's the meaning of the word gender. That's what it means. That's what it means. Like the question of identity, when we tack on the word identity, that's a psychological matter, right? That's a psychological question. It's not hardwired at birth. No one's identity is hardwired at birth. There are a lot of mysterious and complex reasons why someone might experience gender dysphoria, feeling like, okay, my body's a male, but I'm feeling internally, my mind is saying I'm female. There's a lot of complex reasons. I would encourage you like, to go read Sex Change Regret testimonials. You'll see a million reasons why people have struggles identifying in their bodily gender. 
So for people whose like inner sense of who they are doesn't match their bodies, the loving thing is to gently help bring that person into like conformity with reality. Right? Think back on the anorexia example. Is it loving to tell an anorexic girl, yeah, no, you're fat. I guess you're fat. No, it's not loving. It's not loving. The truth is that there is no, there is no such thing as sex reassignment surgery or sex changes. It's just not true because, like, yes, there are, there are procedures. Yes, there are procedures that can give men and women an external appearance of looking like, in some ways, the opposite sex. But every cell in that person's body is still either XX or XY. Right? They, 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 we talk about, in, in the medical world, two different types. We, we talk about genotypic and phenotypic sex. Genotypic sex means, like, what, is, what are your genes? If you're of XX, you're a... <laughs> XX is female. XX is female. XY is... Okay, good job. I'm just making sure. Okay. Genotypic sex is our... What do our genes say? Phenotypic sex is how do our genes express themselves in our bodies. Right? There's a, there's a number of interesting... Um, genetic disorders that people can have where their phenotypic sex, what their body looks like, there's something going on, that there's some genetic issue where their body doesn't necessarily look like what it's supposed to look like. That's a case for like, first of all, those are incredibly rare cases and that's, that's a case for like looking deeper into the genes. Is there a Y chromosome? If there's a Y chromosome, we're talking about male and there's things that we can do to try and help this person. What I'm saying right there, that is not the vast majority of the transgender issue. The vast majority of the transgender issue is someone saying, I'm psychologically identifying with the opposite sex. Now, is this, okay, now, is this, is this really even a big deal, though? Is this really even a big deal? Fine. You want to say you're a woman in a man's body? Fine. Who am I to say? Does it hurt anybody? Yeah, it It does. Let's just start with the person themselves. Is, is it better to live in touch with reality or out of touch with reality? In touch with reality. It's better to live in reality for yourself. And when we look at the culture, the people who are really being hurt by this, yes, there's a lot of men who are being hurt by it in many ways, but the people who are really being hurt by this are women, tremendously. Like, and it's not just an exaggerated, well, what if this happens? It is happening. Like, how do you know, as a young lady, if you're in a public restroom, that the man who walks in saying, I identify as a woman, how do you know that that person doesn't have predatory motives? They're trying to get access to sex-specific locations. Like, it is happening, right? It is happening. How do you, like, there was a guy, 38-year-old, a guy named Joseph Roman, who was arrested for molesting two six-year-old girls and an eight-year-old girl. It's horrific, horrific. And as he's being arrested, he, st- he was shouting to the cops who were arresting him, I identify as a 10-year-old girl. So, do we take him to the juvenile detention center? Do we, do we take him to the adult prison? If your thinking is what determines your reality, who are we to say that he's not? Do you see, do you see where this is going? Do you see how this is, what, what's happening? It's also, it's also completely the end of women's sports. I just saw another post today that some guy who was, he couldn't, he couldn't compete at all on, I think it was a swimming team, switches to the, identifies a woman, switches to the women's swimming team, 
just wipes out all the records for that school. I mean, it's the end of women's sports. And I'm not showing you these pictures for us to laugh, but I just want us to see how absurd this is. Like, this is, this is a woman who's destroying every female powerlifting record that's ever been held, ever. Every female track record, gone. Every, I mean, rug, rugby. This story, right? Leah, Leah Thomas. This one's fascinating. So this is, this is a man who is now identifying as a woman. Fallon Fox is the name that this person goes by. Um, a UFC fighter. Okay, so we have men's divisions, women's divisions. Fallon Fox was fighting the, uh, the number one rated undefeated champion for women's UFC. Her name was... Um, I think it was Katrina Bretz. I'm, I'm almost positive that's what it was. She's, he's, she's fighting the number one women's UFC fighter. Okay. They get in the octagon. Fallon Fox pummels this woman nearly to death, cracks open her skull, sends her to the, she has to go to the hospital. Serious traumatic brain injury. And you had thousands of people in the stands just watching essentially a man beat a woman almost to death. Are we okay with this? Like, and what's crazy is you've got people saying, there's no bodily differences. There's a million bodily differences between the body of a man and the body of a woman. If our thinking is what's determinative of our reality, who are we to say that this shouldn't be the case? Ugh. Are you guys doing okay? I know this is heavy. You doing okay? Can I keep going? Okay, all right. Sex cannot be reassigned, guys. It cannot be reassigned because it was never assigned in the first place. It was ne- this talk of like sex assigned at birth, your sex was not assigned at birth. Perhaps your sex was revealed at birth, but when was your sex determined? At conception. At conception. Yeah. When that sperm met that egg with either the presence or the absence of a Y chromosome, that fertilized ovum will, will develop into either a female or a male. It's determined at conception. It's not assigned at birth. This talk of assigned at birth is ridiculous. Like for many of us probably, like before we were even born, Someone identified us. You know, have anybody been to like a gender reveal party? Surprise, some lady. Okay, you were? Okay. Did you guys have one? Um, we did a little something for our family. Yeah. yeah. So gender reveal party. How do they know? <laughs> right? For many of us, we were identified before we were born. So there's an ultrasound technician, right? Ultrasound technician, with the little Doppler over the mom's belly, is looking at the little baby in the womb. What, are, what, are, what is the technician looking at? Are they looking at like the kneecaps, earlobes, elbows, face? What are they looking for? Genitalia. What's there? Wars between the legs. Is there a penis or not? Is what they're looking for. That's what they're looking for. Right? Again, why? Gender is determined 
by the manner in which you generate the next generation, and that's determined by the kind of genitals that you have. Right? So there's technicians, you know, looking at the belly, and there's like, oh, it's a boy. That's how this works. That's how this works. There's only two ways to generate the next generation in a male way, in which case that man becomes a father, or in a female way, in which case she becomes a mother, right? The man gives the seed, the woman receives the seed, and conceives and bears forth new life. That's the only way it works. It's the only way it works. So guys, I hope you can see that like this union that we're talking about, like we're talking about masculinity and femininity, like it is, it's so important. It's so significant. Like this is the foundation for understanding Christianity. Like Jesus gives himself to us. St. John Paul II, he called the Eucharist, he called it the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride which is really interesting when you consider we have another sacrament called matrimony where you have a bridegroom and a bride. But he said, no, no, the Eucharist is the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. Like Jesus on the cross is giving himself away. He's pouring himself out to the bride. The bride opens to receive the gift of redemption, salvation, mercy that comes flowing out of his heart. Again, if the words bride and groom, woman, Man, if they no longer mean anything, then we're never going to understand the heart of the faith. Like at the center of the faith is not an idea. It's a person. It's a body. At the center of the mass, you hear the priest say the words of Jesus, this is my body given for you. This is why the enemy's after the body. Because he wants to blind us to the truth of the Eucharist, to the truth of the faith. To the truth of the faith. I want to end with this. So I'm going to skip ahead to, um, not these kids. Um, not this Pope that got shot. <laughs> skip ahead. Okay. Um, this is really cool stuff. We don't have time for it. Okay. So. St. John Paul II. Aaron, I have two minutes? Okay. One minute. I'll do it one minute. St. John Paul II. He was one who was teaching the world about all of this stuff about marriage and family and sexuality. He was teaching the world about the body. The day that he was going to be announcing to the world the establishment of a new institution that was going to be able to spread his message far and wide, a communist hired assassin fired three bullets into his gut at point-blank range. He should have died. It was the feast day of Our Lady Fatima. Our Lady Fatima, who in 1917 said that the Holy Father would be assassinated. One hand fired the gun, another hand guided the bullet. Our Lady saved John Paul II that day. That's what those pictures were. By the way, in the crown for Our Lady Fatima, there just so happened to be a space open in the top of the crown that the space just so happened to perfectly fit the bullet that was taken out of his body. He put it in there. Anyway, so years go on. He established the institute. The first guy who was the head of this institute, his name is Cardinal Cafara. Cardinal Cafara 
is struggling so much to get this message up and running. So he writes a letter to Sister Lucia, who's one of those kids from Fatima. And he's like, just pray for me, sister. And sister writes back. She's, the, she's, a, girl, she's a nun who saw Mary, right, from Our Lady of Fatima. This is what she said. Father, a time will come when the decisive battle between the kingdoms, the kingdom of Christ and Satan will be over marriage and the family. And those who will work for the good of the family will experience persecution and tribulation. But do not be afraid because Our Lady has already crushed his head. Yeah. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Mother, you've crushed the head of the enemy. We ask you to come again and crush the head of the enemy to help us to uh, absorb more deeply this truth of our church about the beauty of our masculinity and femininity. Lord, thank you for the teaching of St. John Paul the Great and help us to be good apostles of his teaching and witness. We pray all glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.